Welcome back to the Trojan Talk Podcast. I'm Ryan Young. We are back, and we are back with another great guest for you today. We've had a nice run of talking to some of USC's assistant coaches, getting to go really in-depth with them, learn more about them. I've made a point to make those interviews not just about the same stuff we would talk to them about after practice. A lot of these guys have really interesting career tracks, uh, career arcs, paths, and I, I really wanted to get into that with each guy. And We've had great feedback to some of those, the, the Tim Drevno interview, the Sean Snyder interview in particular, and this week, this is a guy that I've wanted to go end up with for a while. USC running backs coach Mike Jenks joins the podcast. And for those that don't know Jenks' background, he was a longtime high school coach in the state of Texas, working his way up uh, through various positions, bouncing around different schools, eventually became a head coach. And again, uh, Wikipedia, not the definitive source for, for everything, but it's the only source I have on this. Has his career head coaching record in high school is seventy nine and twenty five. He won a state championship at Steele High School, and that kind of parlayed him into his college coaching career, where he linked up with Cliff Kingsbury at Texas Tech, and then got a, a shot to be a head coach at Bowling Green from twenty sixteen to eighteen, and then of course is now at USC as a running backs coach. Had followed Kingsbury here. Kingsbury leaves. Mike Jinks stayed, and it seems to be a really good mutual fit both the way he's meshed in with the staff and, and the way he feels uh, comfortable as far as this program. Now, even though it, he's not with the guy that, that brought him here. So I wanted to get into all that with Mike Jenks, and there's a really interesting backstory as to how he even got into coaching. He retold that story for us on the podcast. So I think you'll enjoy that. But I did, of course, ask him the, the pertinent questions about the running back depth and how he plans to balance having four established running backs in Vivai Malapai, who won the starting job last year, was the leading rusher until he needed to have knee surgery about halfway through. Stephen Carr, obviously, has battled a bunch of injuries throughout his career, but this is going to be his senior season, his perhaps last chance to, to really reclaim that electricity he shows a freshman and, and set himself up for the next level. Marquis Stepp, who obviously uh, is a favorite of this podcast and uh, many fans who saw what he did last year and uh, led the team in yards per carry, six and a half yards per carry. And many people want to see him get a shot as a lead back. I don't know if it's going to happen. And you can parse Mike Jinx's answers to my questions and draw your own conclusions. I mean, Keenan Christian, who was pressed into action late last year and uh, had some of the most explosive plays, some of the longest touchdown plays on the team all season as uh, just one of the fastest, if not the fastest guy on the roster. I, as I told Mike Jinx in the interview, I think he might have the toughest job on the staff this year because he's the one ultimately on game days who decides which running back is on the field. And you've got four guys that for different reasons, different skill sets, different strengths have proven that they can be an asset and deserve opportunities and you've got four guys that probably at this point in their careers aren't eager to sit and wait behind others. And how do you manage the personalities? How do you manage the mental side of things? How do you manage getting the best guy on the field and getting the most out of them? So we covered all that, but I was most excited to talk to Jinx about his career, and I thought he had some great stuff on that. So I think that if you enjoyed the Tim Drevno interview, if you enjoyed the Sean Snyder interview, the Vic Sooto interview, Boy, who else have we had? We had Hayes Pollard and Chris Claiborne 
Um, it's been a great run of podcast guests, and as always, uh, thank USC for making these guys available and, and giving us stuff to talk about during this prolonged and still continuing strange time. So that is our feature guest on the podcast today. I also tackle an interview at the back end that I did with Miller Moss on Monday, USC's four-star QB commit, who was at the Elite 11 finals last week in Tennessee. He talks to me about that experience, what he took away from it, uh, how he's trying to use his platform as a high-profile recruit to address the social issues that are very prevalent in our country, and also about his transfer in the modern day. Miller Moss transfers from Bishop Alamey to modern day high school is just the latest USC QB now that will be coming out of modern day. So I wrote about that on TrojanSports.com on Monday, but I wanted you all to hear the interview yourself because as many have noted before, Miller Moss is always a great interview. He's a great he has a great way of conveying himself and, and offering perspective. So that is the podcast. Meanwhile, what's going on in the football world? It seems like every day we get another domino falling that's not especially encouraging for the prospects of a college football season. Of course, the Ivy League made news on Wednesday by canceling all fall sports, and they're going to have further talks about trying maybe a spring football schedule in the year ahead. Why is that relevant to USC or other power programs? Well, a couple of reasons. I mean, many have made the connection that the Ivy League was the first to cancel their basketball tournament in the spring before ultimately everyone else followed suit. That's not the biggest point for me. The biggest point for me, and this was conveyed in a, in a great story in the LA Times by our good friend Brady McCullough, who talked to a parent of of two FBS players and also kind of the voice of a college football parents advocacy group, for lack of a better term, who made the point that the Ivy League doesn't have the same financial stake in football that most other conferences do. It's not the cash cow that is for the power of five conferences or even for the group of five conferences. And for them to make this decision and say, we don't think that football is viable in the fall, they're making maybe the the purest decision based on health reasons and, and the evaluation of, of what makes sense from the standpoint of navigating this pandemic and this virus and, and what is going to be likely in a couple months because they don't have the same financial collateral at stake. Does that mean that it's only a matter of time before the, the big conferences reach the same conclusion? I think it's, it's definitely still yet to be determined, and I think that the Pac-12 and the other Power 5 conferences are going to wait as long as possible before they would ever make that decision. But I think we have to at least acknowledge that it's significant that a conference at any level has decided that we don't think this is possible in the fall, so we're just going to go ahead and cancel it right now. We'll see what happens. With this whole thing, no one's had hard and fast answers at any point in this process, so to say that we know for sure what the situation nationally is going to look like in two months is, I think, a stretch. But that was a development. And then the Big Ten, of course, follows suit and says, well, we're going to play only a conference schedule this year. And we're going to eliminate all non-conference games. And as came out from various reports, it really left the rest of the Power Five commissioners and athletic directors and everyone else in a, in a bit of a corner and a bit off guard. The conference commissioners and the, and the Power Five conferences have really tried to be in sync and have been in constant communication have tried to be on the same page i think they were all at least according to the reports that came out surprised by the timing of the big Ten's decision 
And now they'll have to decide if they're going to follow suit and do the same thing. I expect that you're going to see every conference jump in line and say, well, we're not going to play non-conference games either. And eventually, you know, you have a couple conferences make that decision, and it kind of forces the hand for the others. Obviously, uh, it's already affected the Pac-12 in some ways. Oregon was supposed to play Ohio State, so that's the decision that's been made for them. That, that game's off the table now. So I, I think you're going to see the rest of the Power Five follow suit and do a conference-only schedule. The question's been raised, what does that achieve? I mean, does that make playing football any safer in the fall? Does that mitigate the risk? No. Uh, to me, it's an acknowledgement that, going back to the, the Ivy League's point, it's going to be really hard to get a season played. And so let's narrow the scope from the start and cross our fingers and hope for the best and, and hope that we can at least get a conference schedule played. That's the way I interpret it. It's, it's not that cutting out three or four games, depending on the school, is going to change the entire risk structure. For many teams, their travel in conference is as vast as what they would be doing for those non-conference games. And a lot of those non-conference games are our guarantee games against lower-level competition that would be at home. So it's not really changing the complexion of risk exposure. To me, it's an acknowledgement saying it's going to be really hard to get a full season played. Let's narrow the scope. Let's maybe allow for a delay to the start. And let's just try and what's most important, getting a conference slate played so we can determine playoff teams and the playoff structure. So I think you will see the rest of the major conferences follow suit and go to a conference-only schedule. That obviously opens up questions for USC. Uh, What happens with the Notre Dame rivalry? Can an exception be made where a few games like that are still played? That means so much to both programs and fans. I don't know. I I don't even have a guess. As it pertains to Notre Dame, the ACC has come out, uh, or at least it's been reported that the ACC is going to incorporate Notre Dame into its plans. If it does indeed go to a conference-only slate, they would work Notre Dame into the mix and make sure that they're taken care of. But what's that mean for those those non-conference historic rivalry games? Well, you know, it's and it's not just USC Notre Dame. It's Florida Florida State. It's it's a lot of it's a lot of games like that. So true to the whole theme of this process, there are many 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 unanswered questions and we just keep adding more unanswered questions i think we're adding more questions and answers really the longer this, this process goes along and uh, that's just the reality of the situation so as of right now usc is still having players return to campus they had their phase two started on wednesday where they had their non-local returning players were allowed to come back and and move into on-campus housing and go through the voluntary workouts Next week, July 13th, is kind of the the date when coaches were going to be able to start working with players. Of course, we've seen many programs around the country shut down voluntary workouts, take a a week or two-week hiatus due to having too many positive tests. USC, at least through the end of last week, had only had two positive tests across multiple sports. We haven't gotten the update for this week yet, so it has not been a problem in that way so far. But again, uh, one week does not necessarily portend what's going to happen the next week. And we're just going to be in a constantly evolving situation here. But what we can do in the meantime is operate as if there is going to be a football season and talk football, talk USC football. And that's what we've been trying to do now for a few months. And it's been great that these coaches and players have been made available to us 
for interviews and really interviews that we might not even have been able to do in normal times. The amount of coaches that we've been able to sit down with for 25 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever and go really in depth with is, is way more than what would be feasible normally. So without further ado, let's get right into it. I want you to hear from Mike Jinx and my interview with Mike Jinx, which was recorded on Thursday. Here we go. Okay, we are joined by USC running backs coach Mike Jinks, who has had a very interesting career path on his way to USC and has one of the more interesting jobs this year with maybe the deepest position group on the team. Mike, thanks for joining the podcast. How are you? Well, I'm blessed, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm most interested in talking to you about your career and getting deeper into that, but let's start with the topical stuff and get into some team stuff at the top real fast. I think you might have arguably the hardest job on the staff this season with four proven to different extents running backs, four very talented guys, four different guys, and trying to find out how to maximize them and, and integrate all of them into the offense. How do you look at Obviously, it's a good problem to have that depth, and, and you didn't have for most of last season with the injuries. How do you look at that situation that you're facing in 2020? Well, um, going back to last year and the way that that season ended, uh, uh, it's an unbelievable blessing to have all those guys healthy. Um, you know, the thing that, that we want to do is, is we want to continue to, to, you know, grow that culture that was created last year. Uh, got a great running back room. Those guys all push one another and they want to see one another be successful. And, and really what I've tried to do throughout the, the spring and, and visiting with them in the summer is be the guy, challenge them to be the one, to be the alpha and, and take control of that room. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing these guys come back and compete. With Vi Malapai and Stephen Carr, you have two guys kind of entering maybe their, their last chance or last season. With Marquis Stepp, a guy who was really coming on last year, led the team in yards per carry, then unfortunately got hurt right as his moment was kind of coming. And Keenan Christian, one of the fastest guys on the roster, if not the fastest, what do you tell them about how, and you kind of just touched on it, but what do you tell them about how you're going to evaluate things and decide who gets those snaps? Basically, we're going to do the same thing we did last year. They're all going to roll with the ones, and, and it was imperative. Um, it was it was it ended up being crucial that we, we we did that last year with Keenan. You know, from the day that he stepped on campus, uh, we gave him reps with the ones, and that's something that Coach Helton had been preaching. We need to create depth uh, from the bottom up, I mean, and it ended up paying off as, as that year went along. So um, they'll all get thrown in there, and and the guy that's the most productive will be the guy to be left on the field. And I recall last year at one point, I think it was last spring, you told us that ideally you prefer a three-down back so you don't have to substitute. You have, you have a guy rolling. Is that still the plan, or is that just not even? I think I think in the days, football, you know, you can you, you want a three-down back, and you really want two of them, you know. Uh, and and you can you can get a situation where you've got uh, Reggie Bush, you know, Lindo White, you got two guys going through with thousand yards, this, that, and the other. Um, but you want some guys that I, I look at it. It's kind of like quarterbacks. The more the more touches that these guys get, the more in the rhythm that they get. You know, so you know we're looking for a couple of those guys to step up. How do you factor in managing personalities? Obviously, it's hard to keep everyone happy when you do have four very talented guys and and one football. Be transparent. Be transparent. You know, uh, and in, in, in our room. Uh, you know, it's not a place for, for feelings, you know. Um, we're going to go in and we're, we're going to speak the truth. And uh, if there are questions that need to be asked or uh, about uh, X, Y, or Z, uh, I expect them to be asked. And what they can expect from me is, is that uh, I'll be honest with them. And, and it won't be uh, 
uh, a situation to where uh, uh, you're trying to stroke one on or, or or say something to one to, to, to try to get them motivated. It, it, this is a message to the group. This is what it's, these, these are clear expectations. And uh, I think that uh, you have to respect that. And I, I think they do respect that. And I think that's um, something we, we're going to continue to build on. I know you heard this last year, but there was a lot of uh, fan momentum for Marquis Step and what he was doing and, and how he was kind of a different back and able to create yards on his own in a different way. What did you see from his development, and how has he progressed in your eyes in the time you've worked with him? Well, the thing that um, that kind of Marquis needed to improve on, and he'd be the first one to tell you, uh, was just the identification of pass pro. You know, and, and if you can't protect, you're not going to play, period. I think he's grown leaps and bounds in that, and he used, you know, he could have used the injury as a crutch. He used it as to get in and study and study and ask questions and make sure that that you know he, he's not thinking, he's reacting uh, in those situations where he has to be um, um, in protection. So, uh, you know, that's where I think he's made his, you know, his biggest leaps and bounds, and he was doing some special things, and and really had a chance. It was unfortunate uh, with his injury. I thought by really, I mean, Vi won the job. I mean, throughout competition, last ball, last two days, uh, and I thought he was set to have a huge year. Um, you know, he got an injury, you know, really early, like week, week three in the season, and really tried to push through it, and finally, I think week six, seven, I really don't remember, um, we went ahead and had the surgery in Austin for the year, got back in the bowl game. So, um, you know, Stephen Carr finished, he had a little hamstring pull, finished the year very, very, very well. Um, I'm excited to see what kind of, you know, what kind of shape these guys are in, and that's going to pay a huge difference, you know, and, and I'm watching to watch it compete. And, and let's not forget um, Keenan, because uh, we would not, uh, you know, I don't know if I'd still be here if it wasn't for that kid. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, he, he won six out of the five out of the last six, six out of the last seven, whatever it was, um, but it wouldn't have happened without him. So, um, excited about them, and, and and again, you know, Quincy Jonte was walk a walk on we had last year that had to come in and, and get some vital reps. So, um, like the room, uh, excited about it, and, and uh, you know, looking forward to watch them play. Yeah, and it needs to be restated that you haven't been able to work with these guys in, in months now. So you're going to have to evaluate and see where things are at once you guys get back and they're able to be around them. Going back to Marquise real fast, I spent some time with him, and he did really emphasize the mental side of the game and how that had to become a priority for him this year. Is that something you're just not going to really know how he's progressing that way until you see it in a game, or can you tell him practice with that? Oh, we can. You can tell just, you know, we've been able to meet with them via Zoom over the last few months and just again the, the lack of hesitation when we're going through our our, our pass pro slides our pass pro drills and things of that nature uh a lot more confident you know in that area you know so I, now that has to go and it has to carry over to the football field but that's a great start uh for that young man yeah you mentioned Vi winning the job last year if you had to boil it down to to summarize what he did to put him in that position in your eyes uh, what would you say? And then does does that give him a built-in leg up coming into this year, or is it just kind of start fresh? Well, let me say this. It's, it's Everybody's got a fresh start. You know what I mean? Really looking at it and how everybody was banged up and injured, you can say Keenan be the first guy that needs to go out there week one. You know, but you know, that luckily will help. You know, first and foremost, um, you know, it's my, my prayer and hope that we're able to get out and, and have a season this fall. But more, I mean, even right. more than that, we want to do it the right way, and we want to, we want to make sure 
the health and well-being of our student athletes is first and foremost. So I want to be sure that, that I know that. Uh, but yeah, you know, Mavai, the thing that, that kind of, you know, separated him a, a bit last year, it was just, it seemed when he was there, the offense had a, just a different energy, just a different the different buzz about him and the way he was finishing his runs and you know just his ability you know we just there were no bus it was just it right. was just click it was automatic and that carried over um to like i said the first two games um of the season last year i was at fresno and stanford I and mean, he was i think he was set all averaging almost 100 not even 100 yards a game and then 34 yards received he was set for a big year and of course had the injury in practice and then Never was the same. So, um, you know, I, again, we March 12th, March 13th was our last day here. Really don't know exactly where he is coming off of uh, his injury and really don't know exactly where Keith is. Those are things that once we are here and, and they're able to get out and run around a little bit, um, you know, we'll have to go from there. Yeah. I'm interested in the, in the protocol and the process on a game day in determining who's out there for each series. Is that all on you? Is that Graham making the final call? How does that work? Well, uh, you know, first off, uh, Graham does a great job of keeping us all involved, um, uh, not just personnel, but just from a schematic standpoint. Um, it's kind of, we really do a, a lot of it together. So, But as far as, as doing the game, who's in, who's out, that that's that's on me. Good deal. Well, just lastly, before we get into your career path real fast, I'm interested in, in recruiting, and I know you can't talk about guys, but I want to know what's what's the key thing you that jumps out to you when you're scouting running backs, the one thing that hones you in on, this is a guy that, that fits what we, we want to do, this is a guy we want to pursue. What do you kind of key in on first when you're scouting running backs? First and foremost is, is, is that is that mental piece, you know what I mean, and, and are they a good person and do they love the game? That Those are the things, that, and will they make uh, the people around them better? And that's what's most important to me. Now, from an ability standpoint, uh, again, I want a guy that we don't have to take off the field, that you know can catch the ball in the backfield, that's not liability and pass protection. And from a, a pure ability standpoint, you know, even I don't care if it's a spread offense, I don't care if it's, you know, a two-back coming downhill. The the skill set you look for is a guy that can, can make someone miss in small spaces in between those tackles. With the solid, you know, with the little subtle movement. So that's that's kind of when I'm watching video and breaking it down. That's that's kind of the biggest thing I'm looking for. And then if you can find that guy that can take the top off, you know, you've got something truly special. Yeah, uh, and, and you've definitely got you've got those skill sets on your roster already. Is it a challenge recruiting running backs to this offense when guys see the heavy pass numbers? And and I know that that was skewed down the stretch by just who was available. But is that something that comes up and you have to address with them and say, we, we do want more balance. We were in a situation where we had no healthy guys and we were having to throw it more? Uh, I, I think that, that would definitely um, be my argument uh, when you look at last year's season. Uh, you know, what you what you want to do is you want to make sure that uh, if, you, if you look at it and, and no matter who was in there from a true freshman to – to uh, two kids that have played a while, they were productive. And how one way of measuring that is a yard per carriage and, and the total yards per game. You know, so um, you know that that's kind of what you what you want to sell. Uh, um, just looking and isolating last year's season, uh, but looking at the the position, running back position, as offense as as a whole. You want to go back and, and look at you know so, what some of the other guys have done, and, and not just 
this system, but in Graham's system at North Texas in previous years and at the system we had at Texas Tech where we had the guy as running back and we've had guys that had 1,500 yards rushing and, and 500 yards receiving. And at the end of the day, uh, that that's really what these guys want and that's what this system will allow you to do. And really, it's 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 the new Vogue. And it's new, it's it, it's trending in the NFL, you know, and, and you go back and you, you look at uh, your your two hundred and forty, twenty, thirty five five pound back, you know, that is just coming downhill and then you come in and bring a third down back, that guy is, is still valuable. I'm not saying that, but it's trending more to a, a multi purpose back. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay, well I I'm really fascinated by your career path and I don't know if, if fans have a full perspective that you were a, a highly successful high school coach in Texas for a long time. Won the Texas State Championship at Steele High School, uh, coached at a lot of places. Now, I know better than to assume that everything on the Internet is true, but there's a great story out there on your Wikipedia profile that you were working as a waiter in a restaurant, and that was when you got your, your break in the coaching. You were serving a table of coaches, and that was kind of the opening. Is that true? Can you tell that story for us? Yeah, who does these Wikipedia profiles, right? <laughs> That's what I want to know. I still haven't figured out that yet. Uh, yeah, but there, there's a, there's, I think I've um, spoken at a couple of clinics and, and kind of told that story that, that, you know, humble beginnings, and you never know when your break's going to come. Um, yeah, I finished up playing my last year in college, played quarterback out of Angelo State in West Texas. Um, you know, went to a couple workouts for CFL. Didn't go well. Uh, unfortunately... I still had um, about six hours left to finish up my degree. So um, that summer, I waited tables to, to, to kind of finish up that degree and make uh, ends meet. And really, I was getting a, a degree in business and a, and a minor in math and, and really had no clue what exactly I wanted to do. And the, uh, Angelo Coaching Clinic was one of the, the biggest coaching clinics and more, more legendary coaching clinics in Texas. I came to town and, and you know, I was off. I was sitting up at the bar, you know, having dinner and, and, and getting ready to, to go to the house and get ready to come back and grind the next day. And um, big D-line coach uh, comes in, and Kenny Washington, and he, he's like, uh, hey, could you, could you come bring us, uh, you know, our tables and, you know, some beverages? And uh, I told him I was off, and he'd have to get the other guy, and he just, you know, he, he, he kept bugging me. And and eventually I, I took the, um, you know, the group around or, or what have you and um the head coach robert walker just started asking questions you know did you play here yes sir i played i played here yeah what did you play i played quarterback they're like no way you did you know, <laughs> you know uh not to me six foot quarterbacks back then um and it just kind of went from there you know where'd you go to high school uh so went to conference jets and uh this that and the other you know conference jets and that one six seven three championships very, very, very prominent high school in Texas. Uh, and really, you know, thank you. Shook everybody's hand, went home, and the next day I was working lunch. He came in. Robert Walker came back, said, I talked to your college coach. I talked to your high school coach. And I said, that would be crazy if I didn't hire you. Uh, and the next Monday I was uh, in Colleen and had an interview with the principal. And she was asking about teaching strategies and classroom management and um I just told her I have no idea what you're talking about. Maybe <laughs> give me an opportunity. I can learn. So um, they gave me that opportunity back then, and it was called a deficiency plan. It gave you three years to take the education courses and then pass and, uh, you know, kind of like your, your exit or whatever. 
uh, I was able to get that done, and the rest uh, kind of took care of itself. That's crazy. That's, that's a great story. So you're telling me you are not the one who's updating your own Wikipedia profile? No. <laughs> No, that's that's a great story, and it's it's crazy to think that within a decade you would be a head coach at the college level. What was your plan at that point? Did you have any kind of master plan or vision in mind? Well, really, uh, we we went to a school, um, it was Clean Ellison, and they hadn't been, you know, I think they were one and nine the previous year, and we had just a absurd amount of talent that we were walking into. They were young, and we made two or three runs, uh, quarterfinals, semifinals. And, that led to becoming an offensive coordinator at a, a at a young age, 24, 25. I don't remember what it was, but definitely wasn't ready to do that. And you, you know, you you learn by you learn from your mistakes. Went from there and became a head coach at a young age. And again, my first head job uh, was a, a team that went 0 and 10. And actually, they've been 0 and 50. They hadn't won a game in five years. Um, we went there and we won three. And that led to me getting the job at Cipolo Steel out there and opening a brand new school. Um, I opened it in 06, and then uh, we won it all in 2010. Incredible. And then we went back in 11, and and, and really that that kind of started because in 10 I was the, uh, the receivers coach uh, uh, on the All-American game. You know, and that's, that helped a ton once I did get into college. And I was head coach in 2012 because being around that caliber athlete, knowing what it looks like. You know, at that age, or what it's supposed to look like, the elite, the elite was supposed to look like, uh, was huge, and 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 just uh, um, you know, the ability to just go out and get eyes on a kid and say, hey, this is a Trojan, and or, or this is not. Yeah. But, uh, that evaluation piece, I should say. There's so many very talented high school coaches who never make that jump to college, or maybe never get the opportunity to make that jump. How did you catch the break at Texas Tech to elevate to the next level? Well, it, you got to remember that was about the time you know I had lost two before we won the state championship. We had lost two years in a row to Chad Morris. Chad Morris had made the jump, and David Beatty had made the jump, and really, um, you know, I had Malcolm Brown, who's, who's yeah. you know got a chance to be the starter um, for the Rams. That didn't hurt. He was number one running back in the country, and that that brings a flow of college coaches through your program. They want you to come speak at their uh, at their clinics. They want you to come visit their campus, so you get to know these guys. Kind of, uh, it, it's a it, this is a relationship driven business, you know, and it's very difficult to get into. And there's got to be a sense of trust, and, you know. And uh, and you started. I started to establish that with, with some people. Uh, I had some opportunities. Uh, had a chance maybe to go back and be the head coach at Angelo State, and, and really didn't. And really had a conversation with Mac Brown, and he kind of he kind of felt like that. You know, going to a Division two school, even as a head coach, uh, sitting at a high school where I was, which was prominent and starting to win games. You know, as you become a head coach, you you, you don't be unable to make, um, you know, those connections, and you're not able to network uh, like that. But uh, what it came down to was, uh, you know, Cliff got the job at Tech, and really, really didn't have a, a previous relationship with Cliff. Um, more, I, I coached with his dad. Uh, against his dad, and really, coach I coached when Cliff was playing, mm-hmm. uh, and you know we got to know each other a little bit through the recruiting process. And he always, he, he'd always said, if you know I got an opportunity, I think you know you're a guy that would be great in it. And he got that opportunity, and he um, walked into a, to a few decent quarterbacks. 
Yeah. One of them just got five hundred million dollars. Not bad, but, huh? Uh, <laughs> so you know, we had we walked in. We had Baker. We had Davis Webb, and then you know, uh, shoot, Michael Brewer was there. He transferred and went to Virginia Tech. Um, you know, and then you know, Pat Mahomes was there the last two years I was there. Um, we put up some pretty big numbers. I think in Pat's sophomore year, I think we broke. Uh, the, the yardage record for college football uh, and DeAndre Washington who was with the Raiders and now with Kansas City at Winsburg 1500 yep. Texas Tech had not had a thousand yard rush in 20 years he did it in my first two years there my second year he went for 1500 and, and had about 500 yards receiving off that season um, I got an opportunity to be a head coach it was not you know you know wasn't expecting it you know but you don't say no because it, it just doesn't it just doesn't happen um um, didn't get the job done. Um, learned a ton. Uh, we'll be better for it. Uh, and, um, you know, and Cliff did the job uh, uh, here at USC. You know, him and he and Coach Helton um, asked me to join him. Uh, and I did. And then next thing I know, my man goes to Arizona Cardinals. <laughs> and, you know, I just feel like uh, USC is a better fit for me. Well, just a couple more for you real fast. Getting the head coaching job was in line with your fast track career to that point. What was the maiden lesson you learned from the, those years at Bowling Green, and is that an aspiration you have to get back to a head coaching position? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it, it, you know, we do these things to be at the top of our profession, and uh, you know, I haven't given up on that. Um, you know, didn't have great success in, in round one, uh, but like I said, uh, uh, better for it. Uh, what I'll tell you is this: you know. It's no different in high school. Like I said, when you jumping into a coordinator job at 24 year old, there was a lot of a lot of things that I had no clue about. You know, when you know I took the head job at at Bowling Green, I couldn't tell you what APR was. Mm-hmm. You know, and and just recruiting in the Midwest, and I hadn't been out of Texas in 44, 45 years. Now, those aren't excuses; those are just truths. You know, and if 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 you know you've got those aspirations, which um, at that point, you know, I was just really thinking to become an offensive coordinator as soon as I possibly could and get to coaching quarterbacks because I've only the only time I've really coached running backs and, and, and this this is out there, you guys know this is when I've been with Graham, I went or when I've been with Cliff. Every other time now I played quarterback, I've coached quarterbacks and that's kinda yep. you know, and that's kinda who I am. You know, it's when you take that job and you get in that chair, it's about so much more than football. And you got to understand that, and you got to you, you got to you you, you got to be ready for that. Like again, like I said, it, it was a great experience. Uh, very grateful for it. Very appreciative of them giving me the opportunity, and look forward to doing it again at some point. Yeah, it's a perspective you can't have until you until you gain it. Just lastly, with USC, you mentioned obviously the Cliff connection was the reason you came here. What were the options you were considering that off season before choosing USC, and have you? Now you've been here a year. You you went through the unexpected departure of Cliff and getting used to Graham. How settled in do you feel as part of this program? Well, I mean, let me, let me tell you this: when you're uh, let go uh, from from any position, but a head coaching position, you know, really, my initial thought, and remember, I was new to college football, was, um, uh, hey, I'm. Who knows? I'm going to go back to coach high school or, or do whatever. You know, mm-hmm. uh, really, at that point, really hadn't even ever had to hire an agent. You know, all these things were just kind of falling in place and, and just, just, just happening. 
Um, but what I can tell you, you do right by people and, and you conduct yourself the right well, way they notice. Um, you know, so I had, had some some guys reach out, you know, throughout that, that, that off season. Uh, the, the, the probably that had, right when Coach Miles got the job at Kansas, he had contacted me about coming down as offense coordinator and, you know, and we kind of walked and talked through some things like that and really told him didn't really know what I wanted to do at that point. We really didn't want to rush anything into anything. And then, you know, with, um, you know, you know, Cliff calling and, and, and saying that, you know, hey, would you go to California? I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> because, you know, but it, it was like, uh, you know, somebody had to pinch me. Um, but uh, uh, upon arriving here, um, I could, you know, I did have a conversation with Cliff uh, about the, the, the job at Arizona. Uh, and, and we feel – we both feel the same way about Coach Elton. I don't know if we've ever met a better person, better man, and uh, he's a great, great football coach too. Uh, he's very well versed, uh, you know. He knows quarterbacks just as good as anybody. I really felt like that that uh, that SC was a place for me. You know what I mean? And, and not very often um, do you get an opportunity to to coach at a, I don't know Ryan a, a blue blood. You know, it just doesn't happen. Absolutely. You know, you know what I mean. And, and um, you know, it was the Arizona Cardinals head coaching position was the best thing for Cliff Kingsbury, and I'm happy for him. I'm proud of him. He made the right decision. I believe that I made the right decision as well. This is a special place, and um, I think we've only began uh, what's going to be a special next three or four years. Great stuff, Mike. Thanks so much for the time. I think we left enough meat on the bone that hopefully we can do this again sometime. I really enjoyed that. You got it, Ryan. Appreciate it. Lee. Okay, thanks to Mike for all that time and joining the podcast. As mentioned, I want to run this interview I have with Miller Moss. Just looking back over his Elite 11 experience in Tennessee, what he took away from kind of sizing himself up against the other best quarterbacks in this class, and his transfer to the modern day, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll jump right into that interview, which was taped back on Monday. And obviously I wrote about it on the site already, but I want you guys to be able to hear from Miller himself. So we'll dive right into that conversation yes so obviously elite 11 is a huge deal for any quarterback kind of the the culmination of all this work you put in over so many years what was the experience like overall first of all definitely yeah i mean it's something that i'm really really glad i got to experience it's obviously something that you watch a lot growing up being a quarterback i think the first one i ended up watching was the year with josh rosen I think Blake Barnett won it that year, but that was like that was Brady White and Travis Johnson and other dudes coming out of high school that year. So um, it's definitely been something that I've followed for a really, really long time and something that I'm really glad to have experienced and been a part of. What was the biggest surprise or the biggest thing that maybe you weren't totally prepared for? Yeah, I mean, I think you watch different documentaries and things like that, so you kind of have an idea of what you're going into. But the biggest impact, the biggest thing I learned during Elite 11 is the, the kind of change that we can affect with the platforms that we have. Um, just not only in our high school, but our, our kind of sphere of influence. That's really interesting. Before you went, obviously, you and a bunch of other local prospects uh, posted that video speaking in support of the Black Lives Movement and, and using that platform. Do you want to kind of expound upon getting involved with that and how that came together? Definitely, yeah. I mean, I think, and this is another thing that Elite 11 touched on, is just because you're not in someone's shoes doesn't mean you can do everything you can to educate yourself to try to know how they feel. And I think that applies to me in the situation just in that, no, I'm not African-American. I'll never know what it's like to grow up 
I'll never sit in the car for 30 minutes and have my dad teach me what it's like to get pulled over. But I can still hear them out. I can still learn from them and try to empathize just with them and how they feel and how they grew up. And I think me showing support for all my friends that kind of go, that go through those similar things is just a way that I can help them. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a really strong and, and impressive statement you made there, being a part of that. And and it's not just that video, but you've been pretty public in, uh, in previous tweets and use of social media to support the, the causes. Definitely, yeah. Um, I mean, like I said, I, I have a lot of African-American friends, a lot of teammates that I've known for a really, really long time. Um, and those guys are like my brothers to me. I mean, there's there's no, there's no, oh, he's black, he's white. That's never been something that's affected me. And I feel like, if I'm being successful on the football field and I have an area or a platform or a sphere of influence, so to speak, to affect change in that way, then it's my obligation to do so. Yeah. Well, well, getting back to on the field, what was the biggest takeaway from going through the workouts in Tennessee at Elite 11 and the biggest thing that, that you learned or realized that you need to focus on moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it was great to be in that environment where you're competing against the 20 other best quarterbacks in the country. Um, and I think you have so many different opinions and outputs on this guy's better than this guy or whatever it may be. But the biggest thing I took away, regardless of anyone else's opinion, is I know how I stand internally. Like, I, I know internally how I stack up. And I left that event feeling like there's no quarterback in the country that I fear. And I think that was a really good feeling and a really good takeaway for me. Well, that, that's awesome. That, that kind of preempts my next question. I was going to ask, what was your self-evaluation? Right, yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, like I said, I walked out of that event feeling really, really good about the work that I've done and uh, really, really good about how I stack up across the country. I mean, that's the best of the best. That's every big name that you can think of from California to Florida to D.C., whatever it may be. So um, leaving that event, I felt really confident in myself, regardless of anyone else's takeaway or whatever it might be. But I, I felt really, really confident in what I was able to show and also what I feel I'm able to do in general. Was there one thing in talking with Trent Dilfer or the other instructors that really resonated with you or one one tip or one critique? Uh, in terms of actually playing? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you have so many great coaches there that you're constantly being evaluated and given different tools. I think definitely just a bunch of different things with like footwork and things like that and just, just playing with pace on the football and things like that. But I think, like I said, the biggest takeaway for me wasn't anything physical. Very good, very good. Well, kind of building off that, as you look ahead to this last season, what what is the one area that, that you feel you want to improve the most or grow the most in before you make that jump to college? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think part of me going to modern day was just wanting to be around the best players each and every day. Um, I kind of want to showcase my athleticism more just because that's kind of been a knock on me as I've gone through high school. And I feel like it's on me that I haven't showcased that, but I do. I know that I have that ability, so that's definitely something that I want to, to kind of show that I can do. USC fans obviously were, were really uh, intrigued by your decision to transfer the modern day. I, how much th- thought went into that? What was the process to get to the point of saying, this is what I need to do for my future? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was a really, really hard decision. I still Some of my best friends probably for the rest of my life play football. I mean, I think Luckily, one of them's going to see with me, so <laughs> yep. um, so that's a good situation there. But um, it was something that it was really, really hard for me and my family, and we sat down and really had to evaluate what we thought was best for me in terms of my career and what would prepare me best walking onto campus um, at USC. And I think 
the training and the rigor, so to speak, um, at modern day that you get each and every day, each and every day playing against the best kids in the country is what's going to best prepare me. And I think that, I mean, this came directly, it's, it's the closest you can get to college football in high school. And that's really what I wanted. That's the environment that I wanted to be in going into USC. Yeah. I, I think anyone would understand that. Um, how far back did you start really thinking about this and, and considering it? Yeah, I mean, it had always been an idea that was floated around kind of in my house, just dating back to eighth grade. I mean, there was obviously some some different things going on when JC decided to reclass and Bryce ended up going. So um, I would say everything happens for a reason. There was definitely an idea that was kind of talked about on and off, but um, I, mean, I would say going back to eighth grade, but I'm really glad that, um, that I'm able to be there now. Good stuff. Well, you mentioned real quick uh, Jalen Smith committed last week. Uh, your former teammate at Alamany, your your premium seven on seven teammate. What's your scouting report on what USC is getting with Jalen Smith? Yeah, I mean, I think he's a really, really great player. He's in the recruiting world undervalued in my mind. Um, but I mean, there's a reason he had schools like Alabama and Clemson trying to get his commitment. I think he can do everything on the field. I think if you see his film, he returns case for us, returns punts for us, played running back, played slot, played outside. Played safety, played corner, played rock down safety in the box. Like he can do absolutely everything. Um, and he's a great person. You know what I mean? Like he's he's one of my closest friends still, even even after I'm I'm not an Alamein anymore. So so I couldn't be happier for him. And I'm really excited that I'm going to play college ball with him. Great stuff. Well, just last question for you to bring it full circle back to the Elite Eleven. Was there a, a particular fellow quarterback or a couple that you got to know a little bit better or got close to during that process? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was that was one of the kind of undervalued portions of the Elite Eleven, just because we can all relate to each other in ways that other kids at our high schools can't, because we all go through similar things. I mean, obviously there are different nuanced situations, but we all know what it's like to be the heavily recruited quarterback at your high school. Um, so we go through a lot of the same things and recruitment and stuff like that. But obviously, me and Tyler knew each other well going into the event. But uh, dudes like Tom McCord, Brock Vandegrift, um, Caleb Williams, Garrett Nussmeyer, all dudes that that I really, really like, and we're, we're still in contact, like, on a daily basis. So that that part was really, really cool. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad you had that experience, and uh, thanks, as always, for your time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you so much. All right, that's the show for today. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Trojan Talk podcast and for supporting Trojansports.com. If you're not subscribed, you can take advantage of our monthly promo, which is still going on, where if you start a new monthly subscription, we will give you a code for a free t-shirt from breakingtea.com, which can be up to a $28 value. So that's a great deal. Pay right around $10 for a subscription, get a $28 t-shirt. Just use code MONTHLY2020. That's MONTHLY2020 to activate that promo. Most use the promo code when you sign up to get that deal. And that'll give you full premium access to all of our exclusive content. We've been churning out exclusive stories you can't find anywhere else. Just to highlight a couple, uh, I actually went out to Indianapolis a couple weeks ago and watched uh, running back Marquis Stepp go through one of his workouts back home. And I just thought it was really great perspective to take our subscribers behind the scenes on what these guys go through to get ready for a season. I thought it was, it was a really telling glimpse into the commitment and dedication it takes. And this weekend, we're going to have a really thorough breakdown of USC recruiting. 
the top remaining targets at each position and where they stand with each guy really got the I think the most up-to-date information on kind of where the Trojans stand with all their top remaining targets. So you'll look, want to look for that at trojansports.com, and you can access that by being a subscriber, by using that promo. With that, we thank you for your support. Thank you for continuing to listen to these podcasts and helping us to grow this podcast platform, which allows us to keep getting great guests on here. It's, it's all a domino effect. Uh, your support's huge and all of that. And we will come back with you hopefully next week with a guest to be determined. And we'll keep trying to, to bring you more high-level uh, interviews like we had today and in recent weeks. Until then, thanks as always.